Hey everyone, and welcome to the Chorus Project podcast. I'm Tom, Artistic Director of Upstart Theatre in London and the UK, and I'm your host as we talk to artists, activists, citizens, and change makers throughout Europe. Um, this whole project has been based around our shared production, the Chorus Project, with partners in Germany. Austria and Macedonia and as part of Upstart Theatre I'm making a show Beneath the City in Birmingham which will be premiering in January 2020. For this week's episode I wanted to take the opportunity to introduce you to our amazing citizen chorus of Birmingham based performers and they come from this huge variety of walks of life and professions and we've been devising the show together since August of this year. So we spoke at the beginning of September about some of the themes of Beneath the City and the Chorus Project at large about justice, injustice, uh, about access to power and resources in our democracy. And that led to a really fruitful conversation um, in Birmingham on the 7th of September, which I'm going to share with you now. I'm going to share it mostly unedited. Uh, We had to cut it down a little bit for length, but I wanted to share with all of you, our lovely Chorus Project listeners, uh, some of the diversity of thoughts and feelings and challenges that people in Birmingham are facing right now. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand you over to our magnificent uh, Birmingham chorus. I hope you enjoy the podcast. What I'm really interested in is finding out a little bit about some of the things that you've all been thinking about. Could we we start um, going this way? Emma, do you want to just talk about what you and Michelle were just talking about? I didn't really have um, a good example to share, really, but Michelle has. <laughs> okay. So she can do for both of us. <laughs> Michelle, I think, I think just to kind of protect the innocent and all that, I think my key thing is often the people who haven't had the opportunity to have the information don't always get a fair crack of the whip because we're, we're so process-led that if you trip up in any part of the process, you became, it becomes your fault. So it can then exacerbate, and then you're there at the end of a situation where you can't go anywhere. And unless people intervene and sort of see that they can step you out of that, yeah. So that's what it was. It was with this young person. It was a collective. It was two people were in one result, because that it's costing us money. We've got someone that is not paying the rent. And then we had three other people that said, we can actually look at this in more detail and actually get this young person so they can continue and thrive and become a great member of society rather than, you know, a statistic that we evict. So that's a housing... You, you work yeah, in I'm housing, in a right? hostel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So young people. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was... Yeah, I just... I thought we need to pull... We need to look at the individual rather than the process. Okay. We, got, we got a result. And there's grants and all sorts of things, but you can't just... You've got to try a bit harder. Like you've got... To, like people doing your job have got to try a bit harder. Well, I'm, I, I manage the team, so right. it's, it's a case of... I manage different people. But the is, we're a business. There's businesses, so things have to... You have to... Rent has to be paid in order for the books to be straight. But sometimes people will intentionally not do something. Sometimes it's unintentional. 
and this young person it was a lack of understanding of what they needed to do rather than any intent so it was not and i wouldn't even say it was ineptitude it was more of they were trying to go one way they were trying to work hard and do what they're supposed to do and the system like universal credit and how you apply for hb housing benefit had all changed and he was just trying to make his he was going to work and doing his stuff (coughs) in spite of a lot of adversity when he was growing up and i just thought this is just not and i'm not saying any of the people that wanted to follow the system were doing it with any malice but he could have easily and he would have left us with this bill chasing him all the way around the system in Birmingham and he never would have got social housing he would have had bailiffs on his back and we just pressed a few buttons Mm. but I don't think and I won't make I'll make sure that he doesn't know all this because that's not what his journey should be his journey is that now it's been sorted and he'll keep going forward so it isn't about glory and I don't want any of this stuff to have it this is about this is what we should be doing every single day empowering our young people to feel good I get emotional about it all, right. but I'm really pleased. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's like, all right. It's really it's right. important to, to <laughs> share that, right? What you were saying is the system shouldn't rely on the sort of the exceptional person who goes over and beyond to try and make sure someone's yeah. treated fairly. The way the system's set up in the first place, anyone should be able to follow that and not have to have that intervention by you, really, to sort it all out. And, and in a sense, but somebody on the other yeah. side would say, well, why didn't he do this and this and this and this? But You've got to look at motives as well as what yeah. he's done and hasn't done, haven't you, and the reasons. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the systems, universal credit, it's all on smartphones. It's all about making an appointment and turning up for that appointment and making sure that you've got the right place to go. So if you're working, you might miss the appointment. Then that's intent that you haven't actually applied. If you haven't filled in your thing, your job... And you've got to have an access to a computer. So if you haven't got a laptop and there isn't Wi-Fi, then you're, again, you're saying that you're not looking for work. He thought, I'm working. The person he was working for just didn't give him enough hours. So he thought, I'm working. And he didn't realise he had to pay all this enhanced housing benefit. and all. It's a minefield for the young people. It is. And mm. I'm not saying my staff are really good. Really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like we were all talking before about some of the challenges that we've had with like systems even just yes. like at work today yeah and that thing of like because of mm-hmm. where you're working you've got these protocols and systems in place mm-hmm. and you can't it's really hard or how hard is it to sort of buck the system a little bit but it, i think as well there was it, it there was so many layers the support worker felt he wasn't engaging so she kept kept doing his caseloads he wasn't engaging so that the person in finance was seeing that he was intentionally not engaging but he was working at night and she was a night <laughs> so it was all there was miscommunication i had to write a very succinct email to to finance there's been a, um, a local miscommunication but we've resolved it now and this is now in payment so can we hold back on the eviction are you sure and i was like yeah we'll put a payment plan so it's not about anybody being, as I say, no one was being malicious. Yeah. It was just a catalogue of miscommunication. And it can be seen, like we are with how we sometimes take offence to somebody who turns their back. Why do they ignore me? Or somebody might have just heard another sound. It's, it's down to how we interpret. But in this instance, we're going to let it lie. <laughs> Thank you, you very much. Yeah, sorry, yeah. No, don't apologise. I'm not going to apologise. I'm trying to give that up for Lent. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm Denise. Um, I couldn't off the top of my head think of anything specific, but Jess and I had a very interesting conversation about how it can feel as you get older, and I put myself into that category, um, um, and in, in relation to her mum, who's had a change of job, mm. and we were talking about that, and I could relate back to it with some of my own experiences, but it was mainly discussing Jessie's mum's situation. Cool. Yeah. Jess, do you want to tell us some more about that? Um, yeah, so this sort of all unfolded last week. Um, my mum has worked as a childminder for 30 years. Before that, she was a nanny. Um, because of the way that the government wants childcare to look, um, a lot of work is now being taken off childminders through funding and whatnot and going into private childcare and to... Um, schools and whatnot, um, which means now it's almost impossible for her to get work. So it was either fight it or go with it. So she's now recently just got a job at a school um, working in the breakfast club and, and after as well. Um, my mum's a very anxious woman. Um, it's just who she is. It's in her nature. Um, and she desperately, desperately wants to be liked and do well by people. Um, and in her first week, she's had a much younger colleague who is actually 17, right. sort of rolling her eyes at her, calling her out on things she's been doing wrong, but in a way that is in no, no means kind or helpful. Um, and it's really taken a hit on her morale and her self-esteem, and as well as having to change jobs after being in a job where she's worked from her own house for 30 years. Um, never really struggled, just through word of mouth has always got by. Um, and it's been really difficult, because I'm from North, North Nottinghamshire originally, um, to just sort of hear all this at the end of the phone. And it kind of brought around a conversation ar mm. around ignorance and generations yes. and how some younger generations can be ignorant towards old generations yeah. and vice versa. And it's a conversation almost needs to happen to bridge the gap and that we all have a right to be here and that we all need to respect that um, and be kind. And it's just been really difficult to watch that happen to my mum. Um, yeah. And when I haven't really been able to do much as well. Um, but it brought up a conversation where you yourself yes. said you had something very similar to happen to you. And yes, because I stayed at home and brought my kids up. And for about 19 years, I didn't work full time. And then I went back to work into a full-time job, a very, very busy office. Felt very intimidated by it. So that was, I could relate mm. to finding yourself newer per, you know, a new person, but the older person. And how sometimes you can feel that the younger ones are much better at everything other mm. than yourself. So, yeah, it was relating to that. Um, I could relate to your mum mm. and her sense of mm. feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Thank you, both of you. My name's Eddie Nelson. Uh, we were just talking, I've got friends and they're going through IVF treatment at the moment, but they haven't to fund it all themselves. And it just seems really unfair in this day and age that they're having to go through this process, fund it themselves, they're paying out a lot of money, and it might not work and so on and so forth. But it seems if they were in a different part of the country or they were slightly younger, they'd be able to have two or three goes at it and so on and so forth. So it's the whole injustice of the system where we can afford to pay for wars. So if there was a war tomorrow, we could actually afford to pay for that. But this basic need to look after people and people's health. Now, this is kind of one small example, but there's when you've got people or you've got kids dying and that sort of thing, it's like, what, how can we actually live in a society where the basic needs to look after people's health and look after them, we don't do that, but we can quite easily kind of find the money to 
go to war or pay exorbitant salaries and things like that. So it's a kind of that whole injustice about yeah. right how not not just the injustice, but how can we just sit here and we kind of let it kind of happen mm. and we don't get involved and we don't get angry, we don't get annoyed by it. It's just life, and I think I think that's the point we were trying to make more than anything else. That's yeah. just one example, but there's lots and lots of examples, and there's probably even ones that are kind of probably even more tragic than what we're talking about here. Yeah. It's like, why, how, how do we kind of just let this go on in our society and not say anything about it? If it's not happening to us, should we not have empathy with people and actually try and kind of fix the system? Because I've quite clearly it's broken. Yeah. We all sit here and just kind of, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, thanks. Hey. Um, I didn't really, ha I had just a very silly little frustration really. So we were concentrating more on what Eddie was saying. Yeah. I was more interested in that. And particularly this whole question of health, you know, our health is the, such an important thing to all of us and how awful it must be for the people trying to allocate these resources because how do you choose? You know, and it, is, it isn't limit, limitless. Mm. How do you choose over one case mm. yeah. over another? It kind of keys back to some of what Michelle was mm. talking about, doesn't mm. it? Where, like, mm. people yeah. have to make decisions, but yeah. is it fair that they can go one way in one place? And yeah. And can you just have a hard and fast system or should it have some flexibility within it? Yeah. And then you open another whole <laughs> mess because yeah. then you get people's individual judgments on something which... Within a much bigger system, yeah, totally. Thanks, guys. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah, um, my name is Z and um, we couldn't really think of anything like quite big since we are quite young, so I haven't really ex experienced quite a lot of things, but um, we started talking about how people, like most people have a minimum wage job and the pay for that has stayed the same for quite a while, mm. but with inflation, everything goes up, prices for food, clothing, everything goes up. And if everything goes up, but the pay stays the same, people still struggle because then they have to put more funding towards that. And especially people from low-income backgrounds. Say if, yeah. um, because I've got friends who work outside of college, like day and night, to support the family. Mm. But with the fact that they only get the same amount that they've been getting for years and whatnot. And with costs going up, it makes it even harder for them to provide and help out and even take care of themselves. And it's just about that the government, even though they do talk about helping like with like housing benefits, universal credit and what whatnot, they still don't see that there's people still struggling because of it. And... Yeah, like Labour have said that if they win, they'll take it up to like ten pound for people. But it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be another party offering it. It, sh it, sh it should be an just like a general thing. Like the go the government take care of our country, so every everybody in it. So each party should have the same goals in mind to take care of the people. Mm. So especially like price wise, or job wise, if they don't want people to suffer and people to stay in low-income families, they should help by making the pay go up. That's just the area that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Hi, I'm Mel. Um, 
My um, bugbear, I suppose, is the whole um, not enough police on the streets, mm. um, which I think is leading to a lot of the gun crime, the knife crime, and all the other crimes that are happening out there at the moment. I grew up just down the road, Ladywood, and we knew who our local police on the beat was. We knew him by name. He'd come into the school on a regular basis to give the discussions what the police are doing in the area and things like that. I don't think there's a lot of that going on at the moment and it's having a knock-on effect um, with the youth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the government, you know, they're taking with one hand and giving with the other. So it will be interesting to see if um, they manage the, the new recruitment that they're doing um, to enhance the, the force. Yeah. To see the outcomes on that. I think my point kind of relates um, relates to yours. It leads on from it. I think they've uh, our government. They've cut so much here. Their police included youth services. Every, a, a, quite a long list, actually. Um, do they actually care? No, they do not. And look at their priorities at the moment. Are they interested only on the only on the surface? If um, if it was their own lot getting stabbed every five minutes, you'd certainly hear about it. Hmm. Only is it interested as long as they are during campaigning? It's, it's all a show, though. They just talk about. I mean, really, show us, don't tell us. All right. You mean in campaign? You mean campaigning's all a show, or? Um, I mean, just as in actually show it, like properly fund these areas, like police, youth services, and everything. You know, after that, you can, uh, you know, offer your criticisms to why these things aren't going so well. But if you cut it, well, well, what, what do you expect? Yeah. There's gonna there's gonna be hell to pay. Do they, do they want to hear that? You could have a detailed report for them that says this, shows the evidence. They wouldn't even read it. Nah. I think that covers that point. Thank you very much. Yeah, I feel like I, I don't know. I feel like I definitely could as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot. To, there's not a lot of need for. For like youth services in Eton, I think is probably where I'd yeah. sit with this. But, well, yeah, yeah. Um, we could go on for hours and probably will at a later date. Um, for the meantime, I'll come over to you guys for a bit. And we also sort of touched on sort of what Michelle was talking about: ticking boxes and systems. Right, it's just tick, ticking the boxes and maybe not looking at a broader picture of people's circumstances and perhaps backgrounds and their experiences. Really, so we did sort of start to touch on that a little bit really and, and actually kind of a little bit what Mel was saying as well so yeah. with community you know actually being in a community mm-hmm. and services that are in the community get to know communities would that help those vulnerable people so we, we sort of touched on a lot of things like that didn't we we did I do the thing about the police is really interesting because I live in Hansworth so and I have discovered how the system works because I now know I won't bother explaining why but um, it's very interesting. So basically, if somebody gets mugged but not hurt, then they don't investigate at all because they haven't got the resources. So then that person mugs again and eventually if it probably is violent. But if they're violent so that someone is seriously injured or murdered, then they investigate. So they don't do any preventative work at all because they have no resources. They only deal with the serious crime and it normally the one that gets priority is the one that the papers find out about and that's how it works. Because they've got no money. Categories. I don't know why it's nine, but they've got five, nine. So you need to know your code words when you're phoning up. But if they've left, so if someone burgles your house and they've gone, 
You'd be lucky if you see a police officer in seven days. Because there's no imminent danger to life yet. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the money or the people to do anything. But it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, so just on resources, something that just comes to mind. Um, my sister lives down the road at a local school and they, they're one of the schools that are doing that clean air zone um, programme at the moment. And they sent letters out to uh, the local residents to help them uh, monitor. So if cars drove up and down the road that didn't have a particular ticket in their window, you're supposed to make a log of them and um, they'd be reprimanded. Um, but my sister drove up the road. There was no one from the school outside um, in the high vis doing any monitoring. Um, so my sister said, you know, this isn't right. Um, she's going to call the local paper because, you know, this, there was a big furore in the paper about it, you know, getting these people to come out and monitor. Um, nobody was out there monitoring all week. So she called, um, she called the school to say, what's going on? Nobody's monitoring. Um, I'm going to call the papers. The police were out there this morning. Right. The moment that you say that yeah. something's going to go on the papers, it's, yeah, we're going to do it straight away. Yeah. But it's so weird that you have to go there to actually get something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because obviously they could do it, it just couldn't be bothered. Yeah. Is there something about like it, what it takes to sort of punch things up people's priority lists? Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, there isn't the money to do this, unless, like, yeah, mm-hmm. suddenly it's going to get us into the, trick, the difficulty with that is that because that resource was then suddenly put onto that to solve that, to prevent the papers getting hold of it, somebody else has got knocked off mm-hmm. the other end. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so much down to resources and it being spread around too thinly. And if, if you'd had the police there, then you'd be have less likely to have the mugging. And then you wouldn't have to decide, was it a mugging with injury or not? And I think you get that situation where the individual services then get all this flack because of the way they have privatised, but it's because they're struggling with these limited resources, when really the, the thing you've got to get back to is what Eddie said before, is where in the first place that priorities are of a country or a government, you know, what do you give the money to in the first place? Mm. You know, why do you fund military action money, isn't it, social services. dealing with the leak yeah yeah so it's this thing it's reactionary so if the prevention police, better than cure yeah so like going back to the community-based police officers we do have a computer it took me seven years to get a police officer to come and attend my hostel and i had to deal with all the antisocial behavior myself before that but they come and they touch base and we speak to them and it's that thing of knowing human personalities give them a cup of tea and we have a PCSO and he'll touch base. If I see any drug dealers, I can phone him up. I can... <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I'm in the centre of Birmingham as well. But it's going back to that, doing that humanistic thing, yeah. getting people, because if the police had made a good community, they could have had one officer and a load of volunteers. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So then they wouldn't have needed officers, all officers. They could have had PCSOs. And I think that's what's gone wrong. It's gone, uh, this is, uh, my job's only to do this, mate. Yeah. What were you guys talking about? <laughs> uh, we were just kind of having a bitch about not being able to find a job, new job, basically. Because uh, it's, it's weird, because it's funny, because I'm trying to find, say, junior positions, so I'm trying to just get into, into the start of things. Uh, 
which I feel I've got some experience and I've got background, but I don't seem to be getting any responses. But then on her side, she has the experience and more background, but again, she's not getting responses, kind of, you well, know. Well, mine was that I, I used to get responses, but I think in the last, like, last, if, when I was applying last year, people will say, yeah, we want you to come in. But I think now, because they don't know what it's going to happen with the EU, Brexit and all that, mm. they, they see a name that they don't recognize as... That's what I think. I don't know if that happens. But I think they see a name that they don't recognize as Europe, uh, British, and they're like, yeah, no. Yeah, I mean... Because it's for the same jobs, really, so it can't be that I don't suddenly yeah. don't have that experience. That's <laughs> awful. But that's what I think. It might be something it's different. Sure. But, yeah. Thanks, Daphne. Gents. Um, just linking off the back of that, actually, before we go into it, um, I think one thing with the employment thing for young people as well that I hear a lot amongst my friends is that um, the whole sort of previous experience is necessary. And it's like, well, yeah, but if that's your first job, yeah. how, how do you get your job, you know? In 80 years, when all the waitresses die out, do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's sort of... But what we were talking about um, was the whole yeah, environmentalism thing and um, the movements like Extinction Rebellion and the youth strikes and what's happening with that. Um, you were saying about the reaction to it and how it's it, a lot of it's been quite negative, um, especially with, uh, for me, it's interesting watching stuff with Greta Thunberg because much as I understand some of the criticisms, a lot of it seems to be, well, she's 16, she can't have her own voice, she can't have legitimate opinions. Um, how could she possibly write a good speech? She's only 16, and it's like... That's like what they were saying about age, ageist sort of yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, but... the personal stuff that they pick up on as well mm. the fact that she's got autism and mm. she's been manipulated I think that's yeah, really unfair arguments themselves. Yeah. Yeah. for me I've been sort of on the fringe of these kind of movements for a while and gone to a couple of meetings and protests and stuff um, and I've started to question it recently because it struck me that um, you have these movements full of I would say generally compassionate people who have found a sense of empowerment and that we have a voice and we can do something um, and much as it is changing conversations and we are able to talk about this sort of stuff more because of their work um, is their work who's actually in charge of making the change um, and are, are those movements with the best of intentions actually empowering people to change societies in, in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial and are ultimately just about profit um, and so, yeah, it's, I've, it's been hard for me kind of questioning great movements with the best of intentions and lots of promise, um, whether they are actually in practice doing kind of, is, how's that going to work out in reality with the powers that be? It's really interesting because I went to a, because I had that discussion, so I went to a, um, presentation it's part of a conference and it was about investment of huge amounts of money in the third sector so when charities have money that they 
If only the rep was like this, have thousands, millions of pounds to invest and they can't use. It was about ethical investment. And I'd assume that these ethical investment was, they looked down a list and they went, well, that's trees, and so that's okay. <laughs> Actually, they campaign, and they, they were, it was the most interesting talk because they get together and then they go and lobby the um, operation that, let's say, is in the Amazon and that's causing trees to be cut down and say, this is how you, and if you want our investment of our multi-million, billion pounds, then you need to show that you're changing your practices. And they were talking about the changes they've made, and I was thinking, now that is amazing. That's real ethical investment, because these guys have changed their practice because they want the investment in order to develop their business. And I was like, yeah, go for it. It's such good, it's a really interesting talk. Yeah. And I was, because I'm thinking about those issues about are we, or is the campaigning making the right change? Well, yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that it's money driven as well, but from a different yeah. angle. I mean, we're saying a lot of these things that can't happen or don't happen don't happen because there isn't the money there to fund them. And the people who've got the money, you tend to think, well, they're hanging on to it and you know, doing whatever they're doing with it and their yachts and all the rest of it. But to know that that's happening and to know that that campaigning is having an effect. Yeah. It, it makes you real. I mean, presumably, the, the companies that have that sort of money to invest have a, an ethical ethos anyway. These are all charities, actually, the uh, services yeah. that because yeah. these guys invest on behalf of the third sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you've got a huge endowment that you may grant, so yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so, but you know, well, yeah, just from everyone's yeah. savings, you know, everything they invest in would have to be an ethical company or project or whatever. There's been something in the thing with lobbying generally, though, is people who are lobbying government and parliament all the time tend to be big business, don't they? And obviously their voices are always loud just because they have that huge weight of money behind them mm. to pay for the lobbyists and the campaigns and, and all that the, stuff. The, fossil fuel industries, the oil uh, corporations, they have that sway to then buy, buy, buy parts of the media in their favour. Mm. It's interesting with that, just thinking in the, in the theatre sector, because this is supposed to ultimately make its way onto a theatre podcast, um, is our, our colleagues over at the RSC, has everyone yes. seen, just like this week, they've announced, yeah. Oh, yes. Because of cheap tickets at the RSC for younger people, I think it was, yeah. to try and encourage younger people to go to the RSC. Fantastic idea. But there's a lot of controversy about the fact that, that was being, they were sponsored by, the, by BP. Mm. And I don't know whether I've got this right, but I think RSC have now pulled out of that agreement. They with have, BP. yeah. And good on them, because if it comes at a price of having a company like that sponsoring you, then tell them go, it, goodbye. It's, it, it's so hard in the arts, mm -hmm. you I know, you're desperate yes. for cash and to turn that. down a major donor like I that would be really... But the decision has been made, hasn't it? Yeah. Is that correct? Well, they need to clean their act up, don't they? And they EP do, obviously, yeah, but it is hard on the RSC. And then maybe they'll start having them back in again, yeah. sponsor companies like that. Getting to the horrible argument now, does the arts have even a, a foothold in any of these claims for funding? I mean, I believe that it does, and I wish that it does, but I begin to think, you know, if somebody can't have a baby because there isn't enough money for it, okay. why should we have money to sit around here this evening and oh, do this? You see, it's, 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 it's a whole... 
a whole and those kind of ethical complexities have gone on for hundreds yes. of oh, years. Yes. And then it, it is, well, it's complex. It's very, very it difficult is. to resolve. I'm not saying it's not. You can only try and make a difference. But it, it exists. Mm. Mm. Uh, but also, I think sometimes the, it's set up as this binary, like, would you yeah. fund health or would you fund the arts? Yeah. It shouldn't be either or, because also you're forgetting to mention all the other things that get funded that are totally unethical. You know, that people, I think, generally would think, well, actually, no, don't give that the money. You know, that the... the nuclear weapons or the, you know, the other things where massive amounts of money are spent in comparison to the funding that goes to arts or health. Mm. But then the arts, because I was, I was having this conversation with my member of staff who's going to do this project about asylum seekers and basically trying to empower people that may, may not have the same starting blocks, so equality, getting everyone up to the same starting blocks. And we were, I was saying the importance of being part of the community, being decision-making, feeling, because you can shelter say you are homeless even if you're living in a property and you don't know your neighbours. Because you can live in a tower block and not know your neighbours and it's the same. You're not part of the community. And I think art projects can be quite... They, they are really the heart. It's about, you know, Erdington £7. Hello, Erdington. Getting people to come to the theatre that don't normally go to the theatre, break down some of these elitist barriers that people don't feel part of it, their voice is being heard. And I think for somebody, you know, my, some of my young people, they may only say hello to someone in the morning. It's feeling, you know, and this isn't people new to this country. This is people that have been born and brought up here. I really think, we've seen it with the light post lads, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's breaking down the barriers of age, yeah. all of it, all the ism, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Of so. the arts. <laughs> Which... <laughs>more about I've got this right why should yeah, I yeah, why should yeah, I relinquish yeah, it yeah. and they're very clever yeah. at dividing people yeah. so that we can't actually unite and actually wrestle this power back because mm -hmm. while we're talking about whether you should spend it on the NHS or whether we should spend it on the arts which are both worthy causes we've still got this massive war machine that we still yeah. fund to the tunes of billions of pounds every year and it's making those guys very very rich and they'll continue to do it and then so the problem you've got is that we can't wrestle it off it because unless you have an uprising against it why should they relinquish it because it's making them very very rich and giving them very very comfortable lives so the problem you've got is that we need to break that structure down and that's the issue we have with all these well we're talking about it's this or that that's just peanuts yeah. compared to actually what they've got yeah. and that's the problem we have Divide and rule is a tactic that worked quite well in the 19th century with um, invading countries, and mm. it's still got you can still see the problems, so it's yeah. probably similarities. It's almost like immigration, that's exactly all it is, isn't it? It's divide and rule. You know, get poor people that live in Britain to focus on poor people that are immigrants <laughs> instead <laughs> of focusing on us, you know. Mm. It's divide and rule. We were talking about social injustice generally, we were talking about age, we were talking about um, provision for people who come out of systems, systems that we set up. And I, just before I came in, I'd read an article about um, a lad, well, he was, he was 30, lad to me, um, who, was found, who died on the streets in, in Birmingham. Um, and 
at his funeral, there were, there were three sort of factions, if you like. Uh, he'd, um, I don't know what the, the, entirely what the background was, but his two very significant carers, mother and grandmother, died within short space of time. He found himself in care in the foster system. So at his funeral, there was the there were some members of his um, of his birth family. <coughs> there were members of his foster family, and there were members of a, a church group who had sort of adopted him and, and spent time uh, and gone out on the streets feeding homeless people. And the um, the birth family didn't want to engage with the press. And the other two actually recognised sort of kindred spirits within each other. Um, and acknowledged what each had done for him in terms of, of supporting him. But the burning question was, if there were at least two sets of people who were so involved with him and cared for him so much, and this is such a naive question, but why was he still on the street? And why was he left to sort of get to the, the state that, that, that he was in? And there's all sorts of things there about provision, finding, funding, financing, you know, that tie in with, with most of what people have said. Um, but there's also something about the systems that we set up. We put people through systems, we drill them, we tell them what to do, we tell them how to behave, it doesn't always work, um, and neither should it. But afterwards, then that's it, you cut off at the age of, I think it was 16, but it's now 18, isn't it? You, 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 you cut off from foster care. Um, no, no. You're, 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 you're considered, you're as considered an adult at 18, so you go from children's to adults, but if you're a care leaver, you will be allocated, um, you have a social worker up to 18, then you get an 18 plus personal advisor, and you can have that personal advisor now up to 25. Right. But it's, it's what happens afterwards. You know, you've yeah. just described an excellent system, but it does, obviously doesn't work for everybody. And is that because the care workers that are allocated are not able to do the job for one reason or another? You know, is it, is it resources? Um, is it training? Is it, is it just purely that there aren't enough of them? Is it that the system isn't strong enough in its, um, you know, in its route forward. I don't know what the answer is, but it just raised a lot of questions about how we, how we treat vulnerable people when they've been under the care of society and then suddenly, or under the care of a very tight unit of society, and then suddenly they're not. Um, um, a friend of mine, his wife um, used to be a social worker, sort of 10 years ago she'd been a social worker for however many years, then she left to look after the children full time and went back a couple of years ago and she said in that 10 year period how it changed so much when she went back in now that she was just completely horrified and the caseload that she had as a social worker was so ridiculous, you know, that she was absolutely just stressed out the whole time and terrified all the time that she was going to make some terrible mistake that would then devastate someone's life or have awful consequences but it was because the caseload she had there's just no physical way she could do her job well 
you know, with the amount of stuff she had to do in the hours that she had. Another friend was um, a truancy officer, and he said, you know, five, six years ago, they used to have all these programmes where children who were truanting, they'd go out, they'd visit the families, they'd talk to the family, try and get to the bottom of why the child was truanting. That's all changed with him now, because they've had lots of staff cuts and things. All they can do now is action the ones where they've truanted so much that the parents get fined, and, you know, they can't do any of that preventative stuff. All they can do now is the final stages of that the Mental kind of services all, being cut back, yeah. cut back to the bone it's just um, you ask yourself we're one of the richest countries in the world how can it be like this how can we have all these divisions of wealth for me we've lost the whole sense of communication i think we've lost the whole sense of community certainly as the population has grown um, and I grew up in a small mining village. I lived in a three-generational home. It was only three generations because we were too young to have any kids and my, grand, my grandparents probably my, was the oldest he could get to. Um, when my in-laws became too ill because I had the house big enough, we, I became a three-generation household again. And that seems to be rare. We fragment. You know, I, I went to university. It was expected that I would not go home and we fragment a lot more. Families fragment with multiple houses, and we don't communicate. I, I, I feel sad when you talk around and says, that should be sorted out. That's the council's responsibility. That's the government. No, it isn't. It's our responsibility. To use an old phrase and change it a little, for me is we are one, we are many, we are legion. Together we do things, and it, if we've got, and we have got, tossers in the government at the moment, let's call a spade a spade. The, the, these people only think about themselves for that. But that's partly our fault, and our fault over saying, let's get them out. And they want to divide and rule. They want the younger elements not to vote. They want the younger elements to say, oh, don't worry about that. Whereas I want them involved. It's their future that's important, not mine. You know, half the stuff that's going on now, it's not going to affect me a great deal. I'm, I'm not going to lose a lot. But they are. And I, and I fight for them and for them to have the right. And I want them to go out and actually do these things. So when I see them. So that was just a bit of a flavour from our conversation with the Citizen Chorus at Birmingham Rep as part of Beneath the City uh, at the beginning of September of this year. Talking to everyone, I was really struck uh, throughout the conversation about the level of social engagement that all the people that we're working with have from the, the youngest members of our team who are in their late teens or early 20s to our, to our older members. That sense of the need for social solidarity, uh, for us all to kind of feel like we're part of one community in a city that is complex and has a lot of very complicated needs, whether that's through the allocation of healthcare provision, whether that's through the system of um, how Michelle at the beginning of the conversation talks about how people are allocated uh, places in the hostels. What I'm learning and what I take away from that conversation is how much of a need there is for people to feel like they're being dealt with as individuals, as human beings, rather than as part of the system. And that's something that we're absolutely going to be exploring 
as we continue to make uh, Beneath the City. If you'd like to come along and see Beneath the City, it's going to be at Birmingham Repertory Theatre in Birmingham, obviously, from the 16th to the 18th of January of 2020. And you can find out more information about it on the Upstart Theatre website, which is www.upstart-theatre.co.uk. You've been listening to The Chorus Project Podcast, hosted and produced by me, Tom Mansfield. The Chorus Project is supported by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union, and it's supported in the UK by the Unity Theatre Trust. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.